Hi, my name is Jamie Lynch, and you are listening to Eating Habits, my podcast about everything restaurants. I will explore the human element of the hospitality business, and I'll talk to the who's who in restaurants, explore their stories, and hear what's on their minds in the ever-changing landscape of the food and beverage industry. I'm Kathleen Purvis. I'm a longtime food writer, used to be the food editor for the Charlotte Observer, and this is Eating Habits. Hello, Eating Habits listeners. This week's episode was recorded just before the Fifth Street Group's 10-year anniversary. My guest, Kathleen Purvis, was a Charlotte area food writer and food journalist. I had a great conversation catching up with her. It had been about two and a half years since um, I last saw her, so we had a great time catching up talking about her days as a beat reporter in Florida to her favorite restaurants and cuisines. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Kathleen. Hey, Jamie Lynch. (laughs) I'm so glad to have you in my office, getting to chat with you about what's new, what's going on. It's been a long time. It has been a long time. You and I used to do a lot together. I think the last time we did something together was a hot was a hot sauce tasting. I was just thinking about that, <laughs> and that was at our now. Uh, is it Sophia's? We yes, did it at in Sophia's. Sophia's. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, that was fun. Yeah. You were asking me about what my favorite hot sauce was. Do you remember? Yeah, I do. Were? I don't remember what your favorite hot sauce was now. I got news Cholula for you. Most stories, once I'm done with them, <laughs> flush out of the head onto the next one. Gotta move on. <laughs> Gotta, yeah, just dump it. Cool. Well, okay, so Kathleen, let's start at the beginning. Let's start <laughs> That's at, a very good place to start. Let's start at the beginning. So all I have in my notes, we kind of joked about this before we got started, is all I have for notes for you is that you're from the South. That's indeed true. (laughs) Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I'm on the side for the South for generations. Uh, My father's family was from America's Georgia in South Georgia. My mother's family was from Atlanta, probably going back to before it was named Atlanta. Whoa. Pre-Civil War. What was it named? Uh, well, for a while it was Terminus because that's where the railroads ended. And before that it was Marthasville. Oh, interesting. And my ancestors uh, on that side of the family came down to work with the canal projects. Interesting. From, from Maryland. They okay. had a land grant in Maryland and they sold it to work in the fabulous growing world of canals that that people thought were going to be the answer to american transportation and then they hit things like mountains and went oops <laughs> yeah what do, what do we do here <laughs> let's see railroads will be better um and yeah my dad's family you know basically ireland we think we don't mm-hmm. scots maybe we don't really know somewhere over uh, there. but they've been in america's georgia for generations and um my brother sister and i were all born in columbus halfway okay. in between and I was, when I was 14 months old, we moved to Eastern North Carolina, to the towny town of Wilson, North Carolina. Oh, and then nice. when I was nine, my dad got transferred to Florida, and my fam- the rest of my family's down there still. And how old were you when that happened? You know? 14 months old. Or oh. I was nine when we moved to Florida. Okay, yeah. so you were nine. nine but I still one. had big ties to Georgia because that's where we went to see the family. My family yeah. moved to Florida when I was six. Oh, We where? have that in common. Sarasota. Yeah. Sarasota. Yeah. West Palm, and then I went to Tallahassee. My okay. husband's a native of Tallahassee. Interesting. Yeah, so I'm North Florida, South then, Florida, all over the Florida. What brought you What brought you back to North Carolina? Uh, the job. Okay. I, I was working my were work- way north. <laughs> you, well, you were working. So you, I was you working went through like school and everything in Florida, I, right? I actually, sort of in a different order, I started out working for newspapers in high school. Oh, wow. Because I really wanted to be a journalist, but I couldn't afford college. And mm-hmm. my folks didn't have any money. And so I uh, went to Florida State 
wrote the same letter of application to the Tallahassee Democrat and the Florida State English Department, and they both <laughs> accepted me. Oh, nice. And so I was working at the Tallahassee Democrat and putting myself through school, and that's when I met my husband, Wayne Hill, who, you know, the, the loyal and wonderful Mr. Wayne is still <laughs> with me today. And his family's been in Tallahassee. God, his dad was in his late 90s when he died, and he was born in Tallahassee. Okay. So they're so, yeah, they a were long there, yeah. time North Florida people. So after college? I, during college. I'm yeah. a college dropout. Okay, nice. Did you, did you not know? I did not I'm know. One of only three columnists at the Charlotte Observer who didn't have a college degree. Interesting. Um, me, Doug Robercheck, and Ron Green Sr. were the I, only I will three. judge you no less. <laughs> Our very own Patrick Whalen never, uh, he was a I, college dropout as well. I was always working. Yeah. And, you know, I yeah. just, I, I think knew, once you find something you love. I understood newspapers the second I saw them. I fell in love with newspapers when I was 10. Yeah. And always wanted to so do that. So where does that come from? Where does that, like, because your thing was like, it's like know. beat reporting, right? Yeah. Like, that's what you were. Yeah. You were all I, about. I used to be a police reporter. Okay. Um, I was on the wire desks. I was a copy editor. I was, you know, layout editor. Came to Charlotte because it was a Knight Ritter paper. And uh, the Tallahassee Democrat was owned by Knight Ritter. So you could kind of okay. jump between them. Gotcha. Easily. You could kind of work for both a little you bit. You could jump around. Nice. And so I came up here and started out on the Knight City desk working like, you know, I had, I think I had Tuesdays and Wednesdays off. And, what does I, that what does that look like? Like so how do you how do you do that job? <laughs> like or is it just like are you uh, listening to like the police radio? Yeah. Are you listening to like yeah. the fire had, thing? Yeah, we had six for, editions a night. Okay. And I call it meatball surgery because sometimes we had fifteen minutes between editions and we were the, the people who were making sure those stories got on the page uh -huh. and the headlines got written and all that stuff got done. And so, you know, we would work until one o'clock in the morning and you know, when you get off, believe me, in this town, there wasn't a whole lot to do. I, I remember <laughs> I remember when I moved here in 2002 and, from New York. Yeah. And I was like, there's not a whole lot of stuff there's to do. So no, I can't yeah. imagine. 1985 well, was when wow, I got here. Okay. Yeah. And my husband and I actually uh, got married on my lunch hour in Tallahassee. <laughs> I worked the next day covering a hurricane because there was a hurricane coming in in the Gulf. And then the day after that, I packed my car and moved to Charlotte. And he stayed in Tallahassee for eight months to finish his degree. So I camped out in a, in a rat-infested little apartment on Bay Street in Elizabeth. Oh, wow. I know. <laughs> Where the old Krispy Kreme was right up behind us. My husband came to visit me the first time and we're laying in bed and there was gunfire and we literally did oh, the like yeah. roll out of bed and belly crawl to the phone and it was a two guys in a shootout over a girl in the Krispy Kreme parking lot right behind my apartment. You're like, where is my notebook? I gotta get this down. <laughs> I know, I my husband's reaction is, where have you brought me? <laughs> yeah, you're like, there's so much to do here for a-, for it's a, a real city, honey. Yeah, yeah, wow, the big city. <laughs> yeah. So, Holy yeah. smokes! Yeah. Okay, so so definitely the the paper brought you here, yeah. And that was um that was the Charlotte Observer. That was the Charlotte Observer when it was still a Knight Ritter paper. Gotcha. And you were so at that point you were you were writing about. I wasn't writing. Um, oh, I was a I was reporting. an editor. Okay. I was at at first here. I was a layout editor and a copy editor. Okay. Um, and I started noticing that I would take. The only time I ever let myself take the newspaper home at night, what was called the pre-runs, the feature sections mm -hmm. that they print in advance, I would take home the food section was the only one I would let myself take home. And I would sit up until three or four o'clock in the morning reading the food section. 
And in those days, it was very Becky Homecky. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, <laughs> ladies, please your husbands with this kind of yeah. stuff. And I'm reading it and thinking, why are they insulting my intelligence just because I want to read about food? There's more to, t- to say about food. And so I went to them and said, you know, give me the food section. And they said, okay, we're about to kill it. So you can have six hours a week to put out the food section and do other jobs, you know, the rest of the time and, and just watch over it until we kill it. Because they thought there was nothing left in food writing at yeah. that point. They thought it was They thought no out. one was, was cooking. You know, everybody was a latchkey person. All the mothers yeah. were working. No one cared about food coverage. And I just had to prove them wrong. Yeah. I, kept, I kept writing stories that people would react to. And I'd write stories on my weekends and sneak them in. Was and that, do you think that that was a risky move? Cause like for who? For me? For, for you? No. Because it would just I go away people, if it didn't work. Well, p- yeah, and people people told me it was a risky move. Yeah. I remember having editors at the Observer who would say, "Why would you want to throw away your career on food? Right. You're a good reporter. You're a good editor. Why would you waste your time covering food?" And I kept thinking, "Man, are you wrong? Yeah. There are stories here to be told, and told in a way that people can relate to them." There are, you know, I like, I actually really like to teach mm-hmm. and teaching people how to cook was something I could do in writing. Mm-hmm. And I just found that I love doing that. And slowly they started to get more and more reaction from people who were calling in and saying, hey, we really love these crazy stories this nutcase woman is writing. So what, so tell me about those stories. Like, what did you think at the time you, you thought? people would, would get the hooks and people get okay. interested Here's in Here's what it was, was I had come from a family where everybody loved to cook. We mm-hmm. cook, it, our family cooked together. Yeah. You know, my dad What kind cooked. of stuff? What kind of stuff? Southern you? stuff, but yeah. also like my parents were very kind of undereducated, but well-read. Okay. And my mother would like read, my dad was a traveling salesman. He was on the road all week. And my mom would read something in a novel, like, you know, Steak au Pouf, and she'd start to try and figure out what that was. Uh-huh. And they, he would come home, and they would take all the grocery money and blow it on some Saturday night blowout. Yeah, and we'd on all something do it that together. they looked up and Yeah, they'd cool. figure it out. That's awesome. And so I was raised cooking, but then I had this big gap where I was working nights at a newspaper. And it had no time to cook for anyone. And so when I went to cook again, I had completely forgotten how. Didn't know how to do anything. So I started <laughs> over teaching myself. Yeah. You know, because I knew I was supposed to know how to do this. Mm-hmm. So I started teaching myself and then I would write stories about that. Mm-hmm. You know, I would think, hey, what's a mother sauce? I'm not sure what that is. So let me do a story on what the five mother sauces are and how that will make a difference in your life to know that. Right. So it fueled your kind of like curiosity to be like, yeah. you know, so you I, could. Yeah, I'd figure if I don't know it, nobody else knows it. Yeah. So. You know, and if I'm interested in it, surely somebody else is interested in it. So I started writing about food. Cool. What what year was that roughly? Do you remember mm, when? 89, 90. 89. Right before my son was born. My son was born in 92. And so, when I went out of maternity leave, you know, I was working three or four different jobs in the feature section. I was mm-hmm. running the health section. I was doing the travel section. I was doing all this stuff. And when I went out on maternity leave, I went to my features editor, Carolyn Byro, and said, hey, you know, I've shown you everything I can do. When I come back and I'm a working mother, I can only do one thing. You're going to have to pick which one it is. Mm-hmm. And lucky for me, she picked food. Nice. And, you know, I'm still here. How much did you nudge her for the food? <laughs> Were you like, hey, I, and it really should be it this. pretty, ob- <laughs> yeah, yeah. pretty <laughs> obvious that this was what I wanted to do and that I saw it. I always thought because I didn't come out of a food writing background, mm-hmm. 
I was always outside the box. I was never in yeah. the box. Right. Because, I, you know, I had to create my own box. Yeah. There was no, no one was plowing that beat when right. I took it over. So I could, I could invent it. I could make it up myself what I wanted it to be. Yeah. And then I just kind of did. You think that gave you an edge over yeah. what? Oh, what? definitely. Big time, Oh, right? yeah, definitely. Julia was doing her thing. Child? Yeah. Yeah. At that point. So yeah, she must she have been. She was a big, big, I mean, I admire her so much. I mean, she's Me still too. one of my guiding lights. And I did get to meet her a few times. I got to way. cook for her once at, uh, at Cafe Balud in New York. Ooh. It was, that is still one of like the pinnacles. And, I, and I've done a lot. Like, I'm really grateful for the things I've done in my career. Yeah. But cooking for her and then having her come in the kitchen and thank everybody was like, I was blown <laughs> away. I was like, holy smokes. And that surprises a lot of people. People yeah. are like, that, that chefs, uh -huh. like like professional oh, chefs. Oh, I know a lot of chefs yeah. who really worship all, all, all of them did. And they should. All of them did, all of them did <laughs> right? Because like, I think, yeah. I, I honestly believe that like, the reason people are fascinated with chefs now mm -hmm. started with her. With her. You know, she's the one that made it kind of approachable. Not to a blue collar job. Yeah. yeah, she was. She was one of the ones who treated chefs with respect and taught us that these people are important. You know, the cool thing about Julia to me too, though, it, here I am at sixty three years old, mm -hmm. and I'm still making a living. And Julia's career didn't start until she was in her fifties. Yeah. You know, people don't realize that. Yeah. That she had this crazy idea but she didn't have a chance to live it out until she was really rather older than yeah. most people would be. Mm -hmm. And she kept on having an active career well into her 80s, yeah. late 80s. I yeah. mean, she was early 90s and she was still plugging along. So that's always been something that I took from her was to stay interested mm -hmm. and to stay surrounded by young people. Mm. Because the thing about Julia, um, and the times that I met her were mostly at a, uh, a food writer symposium at the Greenbrier Resort in oh, West Virginia. cool, yeah. She was always the, the writer in residence there, and they did this big symposium there. And she would go to the, they would have like a lounge thing at night, you know, after dinner. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, brandy. Cocktails. And cocktails and, yeah. and, you know, yeah, fancy little desserts <laughs> and stuff. She loved to sit back and watch people do imitations of her. <laughs> she did, and she never asked the question. She waited for people to approach her. Uh -huh. But she was always more interested in what was happening right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, people would ask her about the old days in France and, oh, gosh, what was yeah, like old yeah. too. And you could see she would be bored mm -hmm. by that because that didn't interest her. Yeah, she was an innovator. She was an innovator. Mm -hmm. She was not into nostalgia. She loved whatever was happening. She was, but the first thing she said to me, the first time I ever met her, I'm sitting in this, you know, seminar and Julia comes in after lunch and sits down next to me. And I'm like, oh my God, it's yeah. like a Julia Thompson. Yeah. Right Were you like fangirling and out? So, oh my time. God, yeah. I wouldn't believe it. I was just like shaking. And so they come to a break and she turns to me and she says, tell me, dear, do you use the internet much? <laughs> now this was 1995. Yeah. It might've been 1994. <laughs> Nobody was using the internet. Yeah. Yet. And she was already hip to it. She was wow. telling me how I'm so excited. They have these things now called, uh, called CD ROMs and you can skip around in my cookbooks and my shows and you don't have to wait to fast forward. Isn't that the greatest thing? And it's like, you know, she's in her mid eighties Yeah, and she's and still embracing like, technology like you wouldn't believe. So I've always tried to bear that in mind. Mm -hmm. I don't care about nostalgia. Yeah. It doesn't interest me at all. Wow. Really. That's, that's... I, I truly don't care. I love to write about old Charlotte and things like that, but yeah. I'm not really a nostalgia person. Yeah. History's, history, I think, is interesting. Uh, at least it is to me. 
because I, I hated history when I was in school. Mm-hmm. I couldn't go. I couldn't remember dates. So my uh, mem- my memory sucks. Can't remember dates. Yeah, I, I can't remember names, date. Like my Birthdays, my memory still sucks. I will never call you on your birthday. And so I used to dread. <laughs> I used to dread history class because there's all you know. You remember like all these sequences. Yeah. And I was just like, oh fuck. I, but my grandmother was a history teacher, and she was fanatical about history. Uh-huh. And um, so I was kind of like the black sheep because I didn't know any of this stuff. But I became interested in it later because. I think as you get older, you mm-hmm. start to realize like, okay, all this shit happened before. Everything's connected. And ev- and what we're doing now is a result of all these things. And exactly. that's and how they interplay is fascinating. So then I started to go back and do some history research. Mm-hmm. And that started to inspire my cooking a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, okay, cool. Like, especially when we were doing the whole um, restaurant in Charleston and the whole slave culture and how like that whole history and then, you know, country cuisine and all this kind of stuff and and that was i mean i've been doing that for i'm still learning about that like i'm still i I know can i point out that when you were in the charleston top chef yeah none of you guys knew who edna lewis was oh no and i'm sitting there screaming at my television screen you idiots what do you mean you don't know who edna lewis is not a clue i was like (laughs) what i I think i wrote you a note and said how dare you no you did on social media yeah yeah you did i did i was because my folks were my folks were history nuts too and they always made sure they told us Mm-hmm. about the depression and what it was like yep. and about world war ii and what it was like so they always raised us with context mm-hmm. but they also raised us with a sense of you know the world is not better in the yeah. old days the yeah. world was better you know when you're young only because you're young they mm-hmm. remembered the world before the polio vaccine and before right you know women could get a credit card and you <laughs> yep. know all of those things and yeah. so we were raised with a real understanding of that History to me is context. And that's mm-hmm. when I write culinary history, what I'm trying to do is look at the context of things. How do you understand the world through the lens of food? Right. That's that's for a long time. That's been kind of my mission. I mean, I write about things like, you know, cornbread and whites, different in black and white cultures and macaroni and cheese and why, you know, why that's completely different in the cultures. And if you know that, you can understand another person's point of view. Okay, quick Quick okay. question. Quick question. You brought up back and cheese. Uh-huh. Creamy or baked? Baked. Okay. Always baked. Okay. Um, and I do I do a version that I did for this story that I did on macaroni and cheese and how macaroni and cheese in black cultures is a sacred thing. It's at every holiday dinner. It's always baked and it's always a side dish. And macaroni and cheese made on the stovetop in white culture is always a main dish, but it's also something that you eat because you don't have enough money. It's yeah. not special at all. It's the opposite of special. Do you know? Do you know the, why is that? Yeah, I have a whole need... story about it. All right. okay. <laughs> write that down for me. I'm gonna put it in the show notes so anybody can go back okay. and I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to do my research. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's it goes back to the depression. It goes back to hardship and people having to make do with something that was a cheaper protein yeah. but it, it got elevated in black culture mm-hmm. so you pushed to to be food editor yeah and was that because there was a, a niche that you felt could mm-hmm. be fulfilled better or because you were passionate about food or both, or both? it yeah. was both they weren't filling it at the time they yeah. weren't they were just filling the section with whatever they could get their hands on from the yeah. wires they weren't really doing anything people could engage with. It was kind of an afterthought and situation. And at the same time, I really felt like, hey, wait a second, there's something here 
that I can make my own. Mm-hmm. That I and at the time, you know, bear in mind, nobody wanted the food section. Yeah. No one wanted to report food. And then of course You're you saying know, at the paper. Like at, nobody at in most the, papers. Yeah. I mean it was like really food writing was falling out of favor and women were afraid it was stereotyping them. Uh-huh. So it really is I thought I felt like if I took it from the point of view as a reporter and really turned it into a beat that had knowledge for people, mm-hmm. then I could do something special. Yeah. So that's what I did. Was anybody else doing anything like that at the time? I like had, approaching people, it from a from, yeah. a from a reporter's kind of perspective? Yeah, there were. There okay. were some people out in California. Um, I had a really good mentor, a guy who unfortunately died a few years ago named Joe Crea, who was at the Orange County Register at the time. And he was writing the kind of stories that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a guy in Boulder, Colorado named John Lindorf who had a column that – really was the model for the column that I, when I had a regular column, I modeled it after Lindorf. So because I had the incoming wires, you know, newspapers have these wire services and they bring you stories from all over the country, all kinds of different places. And I would be reading those things and learning from those. Okay. Somebody did that. I bet I can adapt that and I can figure out how to do that in a Southern way. So yeah. yeah. I mean, there were a lot of people I was reading. Plus I was, I got to be a member of the Association of Food Journalists. Mm -hmm. And that was unfortunately now the defunct Association of Food Journalists, but that was a big influence because it gave me a chance to have a network of people all over the country. And if I couldn't figure out how to do something, I could reach out and say, hey, talk to me. How did you get that story? Mm -hmm. How'd How'd you do that interview? Um, And so we would, you know, all of us in that world. Was it a tight knit kind of everybody oh, kind of communicated all the very. time? And... I know every food editor. I, for a while there, yeah. I knew every food editor in every city in the world. Yeah. I mean, people would tell me they were going to Indianapolis, and I would be like, "Oh, I know her." Yeah. You know, uh-huh. you're in Milwaukee. Call Nancy Stowe's. Yeah. You know, I mean, we all because in our newsrooms we were usually very isolated. Right. Because we were kind of made fun of. Mm-hmm. We were looked down on. You know, the you sports writers. You guys were the writers, fringe. You guys were the fringe. We were, yeah, who cares about what women want, mm-hmm. you know? And the sports writers, you know, were treated like very important professionals. But the food writers, it was sort of like people made jokes about us. Mm-hmm. I, You know, I actually had, I was walking late into a meeting in the newsroom one time, and somebody said, oh, what's the matter? You got a late break in food story? Ha, 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 ha. And I was like, yeah, actually I do. Yeah. I mean, you know, yes, I, I break as much news as anybody else. Yep. And... At first, it took a while to get people to understand that. Mm-hmm. And so in newsrooms, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of people to talk to and brainstorm with. So we used this nationwide network yeah. of food editors, and we all brainstormed. Yeah, We all figured out immediately what each of us made. We compared our paychecks. Really uh, I, I got to push a little <laughs> harder. I got to dig a little deeper. So, yeah. so what were the things that, like, jumped out at you as stories that you wanted to do? In your mind, like... Were you just looking for stories or was it like, was there a narrative that you were looking to? I was always looking for stories. I'm that person in the supermarket who would always be looking in your in your cart when you're in front of me in line yeah. to see what you're buying and see if I could guess what you were going to make. I still get this. <laughs> I get, I get I this. That. When I shop I anywhere, that. I get people like walking by and I, I know <laughs> that they know who I am. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. like, yeah. especially in my two groceries, my regular grocery stores, they know. Yeah. Yeah. And I still, people still recognize me because my face was visible. You know, Helen's face, Helen Schwab was the restaurant viewer and Helen's face was always kept out of view. Yeah. So she could be anonymous. I was the public face. Yep. 
and you know going to the farmers markets on Saturday morning I would deliberately make sure I was there early when the chefs were there mm-hmm. and see what everybody's picking up well, and, and which so farms they'd see they me were and come up and talk to me yeah. and tell me story ideas and you know give me news tips and mm-hmm. stuff I mean you know I've always tried to make myself very visible mm-hmm. but I also just paid attention and listened to what people People would call me with the mixer running in the background. I don't know what to do in this cake recipe. What does this mean? You know? I need help now. Exactly. Like, my and egg I whites are. I to make are... sure I always answered that call. Yeah. And so a lot of my story ideas came out of that. Uh-huh. It was what, what, are, people what were... are people calling me and tell me they don't know. Mm-hmm. So how can I do a story that will tell them? Cool. Here's, you know, and I, I wrote a lot in those days from the point of view of hold my hand. We're going to do it together. It's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. This is not rocket science. This is just cooking. It's okay. You're going to have something you can eat. Did it take a while for that to kind of traction to build up, or did you think? A little bit. How yeah. long do you think it? How long do you think uh, it took? Just a couple of years, yeah. because I, you know, as I said, they had only given me a few hours a week to do yeah. it, and then slowly people started responding to it, and then suddenly the the male editors in the room were looking yeah. around, going, "Oh, wait a minute, maybe she's onto something." Yeah, we're getting a lot of calls. Yeah. <laughs> we're getting a lot of letters, like, "Ah, oh, shit." Yeah. We yeah. Gotta, damn you know, it. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of how I how I got to do it. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Let's mm-hmm. talk about I want to some of like the the people at the top of your Everest oh, that that you've met or or got a story from or oh lordy uh, Jacques Papin mm-hmm. was one um, got to interview Francis Ford Coppola one afternoon oh interesting in a bar over on Providence Road we sat and drank wine together what was he doing in Charlotte he was pushing his new <laughs> pasta line. Okay. He was making pastas using bronze dye. Uh-huh. And he was out doing publicity runs for that. And Interesting. Some, you know, Larry Topman didn't want to interview him about food. He was the, the movie writer, didn't want to interview him about food because he didn't know anything about Italian food. And I was like, yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah, that's it. my wheelhouse. Let's do it. Let's go do this. <laughs> so, yeah, I got to spend all afternoon drinking red wine with Francis Ford Coppola. That was fun. Yeah. Uh, I got to be a great picker at the Biltmore Vineyards one time. That was one of my favorite stories ever. Who else was there? Was there anybody just else? Me. Just me. No, well, I mean, there was a whole crowd of people. So do you remember in the late 90s, long during the Clinton administration, when uh, we were over, there were so much, so many jobs out there that you couldn't hire anybody. Uh-huh. You know, there was, unemployment was at the lowest rate I think it's ever been. And so people were desperate for workers. And so you could sign up as a volunteer to go have this experience basically picking their grapes. And they, of course, <laughs> pass us off as being, oh, yeah. what a cool thing. Yeah, you can come cool, do yeah. our labor. Once-in-a-lifetime right. experience. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I raised my hand immediately and said, oh, that's a story. Let yeah. me go there. So, yeah, me and a photographer went over and spent all day, and I learned about drunken bees. Okay. Uh, one of the big problems when you are picking grapes in the sun on a lovely sunny afternoon is that the birds will peck the grapes and then the juice will bubble up onto the surface and it will ferment in yeah, the sun. Right on the, and right then on the, the bees drink it yep. and the bees get drunk. And they literally are flying like drunks and they're just like yeah. in a really bad mood and just got, you don't want to bump into yeah. them because it's going to sting you. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, who knew? Was that, is that, is that the story? <laughs> the dr- part of it. Okay. Drunk okay. bees right. and you had to wear bright orange gloves. Because when you're working that fast with the clippers to, cl- yep. to cut the big clusters, if your finger goes through the grapevine oh. to the other side, there's somebody on the other side, and they had to be able to see your finger so they didn't cut the tip of your finger off. Oh, wow. And there, I remember there were a couple <laughs> of retired nuns who were working their way back from a trip to, coast, to, to Central America. 
and they stopped and worked for a day as grape pickers. Oh, cool. So, how how yeah. many days did you do that? I, just a day. Just, just one, one day, day out there? But it was just sort of, you know, yeah, there was a guy. We got uh, buzzed by a guy in a hot air balloon who oh, was that's like cool. flew down over us real low just, yeah. to, just to tease just to... us. And somebody yelled, Purvis, look up. And <laughs> I looked up and there was this of the, oh, of the cool. thing going up in the balloon taken off and the guy laughing at me because he was right above my head and I didn't even know it that's <laughs> so amazing focused. yeah because it's they're pretty quiet like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. they're coasting like that you yeah. know gonna, that's yeah. awesome well and it's very quiet in a grape yard, grape yard you know so yeah. Francis Coppola picking yeah. grapes I, I have met a lot of people Shock through the James Beard Foundation okay I did spend so, yeah when did you kind of get into 2001 okay and that was one of these bizarre things so okay the James Beard Foundation does a lot of different categories of awards mm -hmm. and there is a committee that runs every one of those awards mm -hmm. and so i had been a judge for the book awards for a while mm -hmm. um and one day i was out running in dilworth i used to back before the internet we could actually you know get a lunch break long enough that you could go running <laughs> and so i was out running and i'm running along on a lovely spring day and thinking hey you know my life's turning out okay i got this cool job as a food writer you know, it's let me travel a little bit to, you know, with the AFJ stuff. The only thing I really regret is that I never really got to spend any time in New York. Mm. Now, I'm in my early 40s at that point thinking, oh, my life is almost over, right? And so I'm running and thinking, gosh, I wish I'd gotten to spend more time in New York. Go back to the office, to the Observer newsroom, and took my shower, go back upstairs, sit down at my desk, and I get a call from Carol Haddix, who was the food editor of the Chicago Tribune, who was the chair of the book awards committee. And she calls me up and she says, we got an opening on the committee. And I said, well, what does this entail? And she said, four free trips a year to New York yeah. for nine years. And I went, that's my kind of, um, that's my kind of gig. <laughs> well, and usually I had to say no. I mean, right. I had to, because of ethics, I turned down a lot. Yeah. I turned down a, a trip to, to Morocco once. I've mm. turned down trips to Italy because they're, you know, things that, that were ethically wrong. Mm -hmm. I went into my managing editor's office, great guy named Frank Barrows, and said, hey, Frank, I've just got this really weird call, and I don't think I can do this, can I? And he said, of course you can do it. All they want is your intellect. They mm -hmm. all, all they want is your knowledge of cookbooks. And at the time, I had a cookbook review column. He said, that's all. They're not giving you anything yeah. other than bringing you up and yeah, paying travel. expenses. Yeah, travel. So I got to do it. And it ended up being 18 years instead of nine years. Yeah, that's great. I ended up the chair of the Book Awards Committee. And then I was leaving, and they wanted to start uh, a recognition of sustainability in the food world mm -hmm. and we're trying to figure out a way to do that and we came up with the idea of the leadership awards and so i was the founding chair of the leadership awards so i stayed on for a few more years for that and then i was getting ready to go off again and john washko at the time was the chair of the awards committee and he came to me and said well i don't want you to leave <laughs> and i said well john i can't just keep coming up here because you like playing with me right yeah. i mean you know i, I got have, a life have a job yeah, i got a life and here. I gotta... he said well we need somebody to take the uh humanitarian and lifetime achievement awards and clean those up because they really were just afterthoughts gotcha. you know it's like oh who's about to die let's give him lifetime achievement yeah and i and and they wanted it done a little more seriously so i spent my last three years I think doing that and improving that award and I actually could have stayed on another three years but decided you know 
New York is a young person city. I was getting to a point where I wasn't young anymore. Yeah. And, you know, running up and down subway steps wasn't nearly as fun as it used to be. And mm-hmm. I also just felt like, you know, time to get off the Ferris wheel, let somebody else ride. Yeah. You know, you should always make room for other people. Always remember and volunteer work. You don't own it. Right. You're just there to be the caretaker. Yep. And so, but I got to spend these 18 years yeah. going to New York four times a year, going to all the Beard Awards. God almighty. Kind of so when was that? I mean, that was fairly recently that you. <laughs> yeah, I stopped in eight, 2018, 18, I think. 18, yeah. Yeah, because I started around 2000. It was before 9-11 when okay. I started. Because actually, the first year I was doing it, I got to go to dinner at Windows of the World. Oh, God. And then the next year, it, you know. I do. I was there. Oh, it was awful. Yeah. I was there. Oh, it was terrible. And so that we, smell. Oh, it was, So the yeah. restaurant I was working at when that happened. I was actually, I was in the shower getting ready to go to work mm-hmm. when all that stuff happened. And I was a sous chef at a restaurant called Tocqueville on 15th Street. Oh, I remember Street. that place. Yeah, yep. yeah. It was on 15th Street. Oh, real close. Right on Union 15. Square. Yeah, yeah, so 11th yeah. was ground zero. Yeah. Everything from 11th South was just Yeah, I remember being at the disaster. Union Square Green Market and just the wind shifting and thinking, and the hair stood up in my arms. I mean, it was just, yeah. Oh. So I called the owner, who like the chef owner, him and his wife owned the restaurant. It was a small, like, 40-seat. It, was, yeah. it reminded yeah. me of Barrington's. Yeah, 100% yeah. like Barrington's. And um, so I called the owner, and I was like, like, what the fuck's going on? Like, do you, I don't think I can come to work. He's like, don't come to work. Yeah, yeah he's like, no. Don't like, move. Don't go yeah, anywhere just south. stay yeah. put. So yeah. I was like, okay, shit. I had a really old Caprice classic. A big Chevy Caprice classic <laughs> that you had it, in the city. Well, I had. I lived, I lived in Astoria. Oh, so I right, lived, yeah. Right, so I lived. Right. I, so I lived like, it, yeah, right, yeah. I didn't drive it. It just sat. It sat. So, yeah. And yeah. Um, but um, so we fired it up, and we ended up meeting people at the Queensboro Bridge. Oh, we're bringing them and across. just driving them wherever they needed to go for like oh, uh, twenty hours. I was just picking yeah. people up and just where you want to go, like. Oh man! I'll get yeah. you as far out of the city as I can, or whatever. Yeah, it yeah. Was oh god! Nuts. I was there two weeks after, and basically we had one of the older women on the committee called us all and said, "If you're not willing to come to the city now, don't ever come back." Mm-hmm. And so we had a meeting two yeah. weeks later. You wow! Know, and the, you're landing, and the smoke is still rising from the site. It was so depressing. Oh, it was man. Awful. So we started. So we decided to um, obviously all the restaurants were closed. Mm-hmm. We were we were closed. We started cooking just batches of food for the rest for rescue workers. We yeah. just drop them off at 11th Street. We just basically throw them in the back of somebody's car, head down to 11th Street, and just hand them off to somebody and be like, "Here's food." The, you know? the forerunner of Jose Andres. Yeah. You know, yeah. I always wondered if that might be where he got that idea I because wonder. there were so many people doing that. Yeah. And the few places uh, that had an open kitchen space, you know. At he's that one, a legend, for, by yeah. the way. Oh, what I know amazing, he is. I've interviewed him. Amazing. He's really hard to interview. Is he? Because he, he's, like, super excitable. <laughs> well, he's, like, he's like <laughs> he an ADD adult. Yeah. He's, like, he refers to himself. I'm like Nemo. My wife tells me I'm like Nemo. You know, always, <laughs> or, no, what's the fit? Dory. Yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, the Dory no, fish. Yeah, yeah. And it was, like, he told me this, and I'm going, the Dory fish, what are you talking about? And then I realized, oh, finding Dory and finding Nemo. Yes, you are. What an amazing dude. Yeah, he's what he's accomplished just right. kills me. I mean, if I could right now, I if I wasn't, you know, old lady in, in everyone's way, I'd have been on a, fl- a plane to go over to the Ukraine and help. Yeah. You know. Hugh Atchison, I know, went. Did um, he? Yeah. He I, know, I know a couple people who have who've up and, and gone and, and done that. To help it's him, yeah. Amazing. Just, oh, I know. He really. I, I, I know a couple of people who have gone over there to fight. Have who, you really? who volunteered. Good I'm like, them. you guys are. Good for them. Crazy. If you don't have, if you don't have to worry about, you know, yeah, kid family or and family all that. or yeah. any of those things, yeah, uh, you know, I wish I could. Yeah. 
all I can do is, you know, tell people, keep helping. Please keep helping. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so New York at that time, right, <laughs> su super depressing. Yeah, I have a lot of really vivid memories of that time because, yeah. you know, we were there again a couple of months later for the next mm -hmm. meeting. And, and was that at the Beard? Was that for the Beard House? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was the it, it was the Beard Awards. It was it took all year to do those awards. Yeah. Like the book awards, like I started Start. out with. You started out in September, mm -hmm. and you know first you have to line up all the judges, and then you have to handle all the books coming in, and there would be hundreds and hundreds of books that had to be dealt with, and then you had to deal with the balloting, and making sure the ballots were done correctly, and watching out for outliers, all those weird little things you learn when you do contests. Um, I'm judging a book contest right now. I still do a lot of book judging. Um, I do the Tales of the Cocktail uh, uh -huh. book awards, and I am actually, the rest of them are they're due tomorrow, and I'm only halfway through the uh -oh. ballot. Uh-oh. <laughs> Someone will be up late yeah. tonight. <laughs> um, yeah, but, How you are know. you with the deadlines? Actually, I'm very I, good. You're usually like... I'm always on time. Okay. I mean, always, do, always do you, on time. Are you like a down to the wire? Or are you Sometimes, usually like... Sometimes, yes. Okay. I mean, I'll tell editors, you know what? You're going to get this a day before it's due, but not two days before it's due. <laughs> I, You know, I mean, I, I know exactly where my deadline is and how to hit it. And, and I can't do anything. I used to say in the newsroom, I can't do anything without a deadline. Yeah. I got to have that clock ticking to know. I know. think I would be completely useless if I didn't have, <laughs> if I didn't have things to do. Yeah. Like, I would just, I wouldn't do anything. Yeah. Like, for, like you know? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's face it. Most chefs are, you, you guys are like athletes. You're all ADD. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> I, I have not been diagnosed because I refuse to oh, go talk to somebody about I, it. Yeah. Honey, I, all yeah. of you. Yeah. yeah. My sister specializes in, my sister's a private counselor. Okay. And she specializes in firefighters. Oh, wow. And they are all ADD. Oh, I bet. <laughs> so what do they do all day? Oh, no, well, let's not go down that rabbit know. hole. I but, yeah, but I, I always laugh when I hear her talking about him because I'm like, oh, yeah, chefs. I know chefs. Yeah, <laughs> we are. We are uh, just. You guys are a weird little breed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, okay, so favorite chef that you've ever. <laughs> you mentioned Jacques Pupin. Oh, favorite chef that I've ever interviewed yeah, or that I've eaten or... is food. Food. Uh, Let's do food. F oh, French Laundry, Thomas Keller. Yeah. God almighty. When, First, when, what year did you. Let me see. When did I go there? Um. You know, 94, 95. Okay. French Laundry had just oh, been yeah. called the best restaurant in the country. Yeah, yeah. He was and, like in full blown, oh, like taking God. over the world it mode. It was amazing. <laughs> it truly, I mean, there were yeah. parts of that dinner I just closed my eyes and I could still taste them. Yeah. And that's the thing is I can't remember anyone's name, mm -hmm. can't remember anyone's face, can't remember anyone's birthday, but I can remember exact tastes from mm -hmm. 40 years ago. It's amazing how potent mm -hmm. food memories are oh, yeah. for people. Oh, yeah. Know? For a reason, yeah. I think. I mean, nature makes us remember because eating food keeps us alive. And right, if we don't right, remember right. what's good and what's not good, we'd die. Right. So nature makes us remember. Yeah. Makes makes taste and smell the most evocative memories. Mm. The most evocative senses yeah. of memory are taste and smell. And, you know, that's how, that's the secret to how we managed to make it on this weird little planet we're on. So Thomas has got the number one slot. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, although not a nice guy. I mean, a very tough person to interview. Does Is not it? like reporters. Yeah. Does not suffer fools lightly. Can be very dismissive mm -hmm. and very rude. Uh, he could be a really hard person to interview. But his food, God, at French Laundry. And I had, I was at uh, Bouchon. And what was that other one he had in New York at um, Time se. Warner? Per se? Yes, per yeah. se. Yeah. Got to go to that, too. I mean, yeah. it, you know, 
the kind of food that just how did per se stack up to the french laundry for you oh french laundry was much better was because it? it was so much fresher yeah and well and so thomas was also newer. in the kitchen then yeah like he, he was, was in the kitchen. He, he was on the pass he every was the acolyte day. he was he was like a young priest and yeah. now i'll tell you a crazy thing um when i started out in the newspaper business way back um i used to work at the palm beach daily news in palm okay. beach all right the shiny chic <laughs> and the same time I was working at the Shiny Sheet, he was working at the Palm Beach Yacht Club. Oh, wow. And probably ate his food and didn't know it. All right. Or maybe Did... ran into him in a bar and didn't know it, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want, well, maybe not. That would have been 78, 79. That was when he was still in the, at the Yacht yeah. Club before he became anybody. Wow. And didn't have any expectations yeah, yeah. He was. anybody. He yeah. was very, as before he yeah. really yeah. took off anywhere. Yeah. He was still getting his food um, on had to, I got to know Sean Brock when he was just this really quiet, very shy guy out of West Virginia, had eaten in the General Lewis Inn when mm -hmm. his mother worked there. And oh, he wow. was working in the kitchen at the General Lewis. And so the first time I met him at Southern Foodways, the Southern Foodways Symposium in Mississippi, like he was making some um, de pickled egg, pickled deviled eggs. And he was carefully like standing there, you know, nobody knew who he was. He was just getting this bite together. And I walked over and I said, the General Lewis Inn, the mountain trout at the General Lewis Inn. And he looks up at me and started laughing and said, how do you know that? And I said, because I stayed yeah, there yeah, one time yeah. on the way to the Greenbrier. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I, I know where he's from. Man. I know your mama. I know where your people from. <laughs> Have you been to any of his new spots? Any Sean's new spots? Not since Charleston. Yeah. No, no. Okay. And I, you know, I'd like to. I'd like to see how he's evolved. But, you know, his his work, I didn't get to go to McCready's when he was really doing the edgy stuff. And yeah. I'm sorry. I, I, I got to, that's where I first got introduced. Yeah, to, Husk was to, where yeah. I first really ate his food. Gotcha. When he really, they originally had Husk. Yeah. And, and that was pretty revelatory. McCready's was fire. Like when I first yeah. ate at McCready's, he may have been the only person in Charleston who was doing a tasting menu mm -hmm. at that point. I think you're right. Like yeah. there was no option. It was just like, you know, you yeah. can have tasting menu one or two. That's it. <laughs> and uh, so we did tasting menu one and two. Right. So we had all like, you Get know, all the stuff. Yeah, yeah. I got eight, 18 That's courses or whatever. Yeah, yeah. With most of my friends. Yeah. And, um, and I, and I tell people, a lot of people, when I talk about that meal, I think there was only like two things out yeah. of like 18 dishes that I was like, hmm. you know, that yeah. maybe I didn't. Fully agree with, but there was a lot of things that I was blown away by. Yeah, like techniques I'd never seen. That's always things the risk like of the tasting menu. Yeah. you know, you're never gonna hit all of them. Yeah, there was a lot of cool approaches to things that were beyond like kind of my creativity. Mm -hmm. Right, I was like, holy shit, what is mm -hmm. he doing back there? Mm -hmm. Like, well, how are you? making this happen yeah um and then come to find out he's got all these like crazy machines and like centrifuges and just applying all this like really outside the box stuff yeah. to 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 food right yeah kind of like the whole el bully thing where you just like approach it from a different <laughs> from a different level yeah oh, yeah that was pretty yeah, fun yeah and i used well, i used to dread it because we were always with the book awards with the james beard we were always put in charge of a single category mm -hmm. and the one everybody dreaded besides the diet books because nobody wanted to do diet books because those <laughs> are really boring but the because well, nobody wants to die we had a professional category <laughs> cooking yeah. from a professional point of view and testing the recipes for those suckers was like I would go to friends in town, you know, chefs, and just say, "Help me! I I yeah. have no idea how to judge this. I don't know what this equipment is. Help yeah. me!" And then I'd give them the box when I was done. So Paul Verica <laughs> got my I got the uh, 
Hester Blumenthal's Fat Duck Cookbook. Oh, it's Do you a remember great that book. one yes, with all the I cool s- illustrations and the it? crazy folk? I think it's behind you right yes, there. Yes, I gave my copy. There it to Paul. is, bottom bottom left. Yeah, yeah, and there's oh Thomas Keller's Under <sighs> yeah, Pressure. Yeah. I see that. I now yeah. have a sous vide maker. Yeah. Now I have all this stuff <laughs> yeah. that I didn't. Yeah, so I would go to to chefs and just get them to help me. Yeah, and then I'd give them the book. I bought that book when it first came out, and um, God, I can't remember when it came out. Yeah. I mean, I had to, oh golly, uh, two thousand four. Yeah. I'm thinking two thousand five. And maybe. like I couldn't even I couldn't even follow along. Oh, and I'm yeah. and I was a professional chef at that point. Right. I was like, yeah. I have no idea what oh, this dude's talking me. about. Yeah. And I'm I write for home cooks, so yeah. you know what the heck am I supposed to do? But I remember having a lot of fun with that one, and I think I ended up giving mine to Paul Verica. So cool. All right, so I want to jump back to Sean for a second. Sean, yeah. So I ate at the Continental the other day. Oh, in, Nash- uh, in Nashville? In, in Nashville. Yeah. Well, I was in Nashville yeah. for Church and Union. And that dude can cook traditional French food. Oh, no kidding. I'm oh, not surprised. Oh, yeah. It I'm was, not surprised. And was, now that he's not drinking, yeah, he's so much less erratic mm-hmm. than he was. I mean, for a while, he really kind of spun out of control, and mm-hmm. his food spun out of control. You can tell when that's happening with somebody. <laughs> I know all about you that. Know that I know about that life. Yeah, yeah you totally. do. And um, so I'm glad to hear that he's, yeah. you know, back in an mm-hmm. area where he's focusing on being a great chef. I've not been to the Audrey yet. I've heard uh, amazing, I've heard good things. amazing yeah. things about that. Um, but he is cooking awesome. Like, and it's so like traditional. Mm-hmm. There's not a whole lot of his tricks and things yeah, on yeah, the plate. Yeah. But you can tell through the, like the simplicity yeah. of the dish and how well executed it is that there is a lot of technique in each on each plate yeah like yeah it was it was very good appreciation Mm -hmm. of the ingredients i mean this is a kid who came out of west virginia yep came out of the general lewis inn if you've ever been to the general lewis totally you know i mean has respect i i remember at husk wasn't it he did um these catfish backs do you remember that it would would make them into a sort of like a bacon Uh uh-huh he called them catfish bacon Mm -hmm. you remember that yes i mean that's somebody who spent his life really looking at leftover catfish and thinking about what you can (laughs) do how am i going to use that (laughs) how can i make that work yeah yeah i mean i see that kind of creativity in in greg collier Mm -hmm. at lee and louise i mean i go back into greg's place and i look at what he's got on those shelves Mm -hmm. i got to write a story for our state not too long ago on how Greg doesn't throw anything away and mm-hmm. repurposes it. Yeah. And the guy came up with burnt bacon whipped cream. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah. You know, how mm-hmm. do you come up with something like that? I, I can totally know. see. I like I would not have done that. Mm-hmm. But when you said it, I was like, that's why I would do it. Yeah. Like it works because. Right. Exactly. Because fat is a carrier of flavor. Let's talk about Paul Verica. Mm, because it's I one of, if that would come up. It's one of the topics that was on my thing. Yeah. You know, you and I talked just for a second about the the bill that's being voted on today. Yes. In the Senate to replenish, uh, we're going to knock on the, wood that it's going to get passed to replenish the PPP um, funding. Mm-hmm. So we lost uh, the Stanley mm-hmm. uh, last week mm-hmm. on Friday was his last service there. I know. I know. I wish I could have gone. I was already, yeah. you know, on my way out of town and couldn't do it. I was in Charleston. Yeah. Gonna... Yeah. I was on my way to Chapel Hill. Um, so that's a bummer. One of the things I see right now isn't just the difficulty of keeping a business alive through this horror show over the last two years, but also the psychological toll. Yep. The burnout. Yep. And all the PPP money in the world can't help you with that. And I really think, I mean, I hate to say, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know. But I know he was very burned out. Yeah. And I know Orto 
closing so quickly mm-hmm. was a real blow. Sure. And I know it was financially difficult. I'm sure they really take a, took a big hit on that one. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I just got the sense his heart wasn't in the game anymore with the people. Yeah. I mean, I see this sometimes. I mean, you can answer this more better than I can. I mean, I can throw a question back at you. Sometimes with the best chefs that I see, they're in love with the cooking. They're in love with service or with the challenge of getting it out there every day, the Tony Bourdain kind of, you know. Mm-hmm. But they don't always seem like they love feeding people. Mm-hmm. And I see that turn up sometimes. And I think with him, that was, he was yep. kind of over it with the people. Yeah. I mean, people, human so, beings are hard to feed. Yeah. You know, are. we can be real assholes. Yep. Totally. <laughs> so, so I can speak to that a little, a little bit. Yeah. And I wonder, and I wonder, um, I'm going to reach out to Paul and see if he wants to talk about it. Yeah. You know, what's going on. Cause I, I know that that was the major factor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he said it in his, his article that, you know, it just mm-hmm. wasn't fun anymore. Yeah. And you um, can tell it wasn't. Yeah. I think for me, I was, uh, the hooks that got in me was the high octane, Tony Bourdain, like mm-hmm. kitchen, you know, frenzy, like mm-hmm. th- that appealed to me. And I had the constitution to like do it, like yeah. to be able to yeah, do well, drugs all day and like rush. And adrenaline and is addictive. work so, your ass yeah. off. Yeah. But the the cooking part of it and the desire to become a chef for me came from the connection because I was I'm, I've been always kind of a gruff punker, <laughs> yeah, kind of an asshole person. Yeah. You know what I mean? A little bit. And you so an asshole? Really? Yeah, big time talk to some people there's plenty of documentation oh, to support that yeah. there's plenty of documentation to support it i don't tell everybody what yeah. i know yeah. um but it, it it was the connection to people that i got through cooking yeah right that was my way of of being nurturing and supportive and and caring for people in a way that i didn't in my normal persona uh-huh. and so so i really enjoyed cooking for people um which leads me to where I'm going with this is is where is the state of um, like the dining public right now? Mm-hmm. Like like mm-hmm. I'm a little I'm a little disheartened by just like a lot of the social media platforms and then Yelp and all that shit. But people are I mean that shit was bad before right. the pandemic, right. and now you lock a bunch of people up in their cages for for two years, yeah, and set them loose, and it's like people just seem like they're out of their fucking minds. Well, <laughs> yeah, you have to remember, I think, with social media, because I've I've surfed the social media game for a while. Yeah. I think I'm actually pretty good at it. You are pretty good at um, it, and you do see this very concentrated group of people. It's like being in a room and all the nice people are keeping their mouths shut and just the assholes are talking. <laughs> yes. You know? I mean, that's going to give you kind of an unbalanced view of the world. Right. And I think that it's easy to get that. Like with Paul, I mean, I'll be honest with you. When I posted about Paul, you know, he sent the news out at like 7.57 p.m. on a Sunday night. Yeah. <laughs> I sent a message to his PR person, Callie Langhorn, and said, on a Sunday night? Come on, yeah. Paul. Yeah. No, um, nobody's on the social media. Why are you doing this to us? Yeah. yeah. But I posted he probably did. He probably wanted it oh. to be a slow roll. Oh, I'm he sure he didn't want to get Oh, like, I know he did. Yeah, he's oh, like, I don't want to get... Because of exactly what happened, yeah. which is I posted a link and said, oh, God, you know, I'm so sorry to hear this. And And there's a gentleman who had gotten angry about Paul over a situation that was poorly communicated in which he claimed that Paul, shouldn't say claimed, he believed that Paul and his restaurant had discriminated against them for being gay. 
Right. I don't think that Paul intended it to be that. I think Paul can sometimes be such a jerk that he doesn't realize how he's coming off. <laughs> but that guy dived on immediately, right. reposted all of his original stuff, and then a whole thread off of a share of mine uh, started up all over again. Um, how dare they? These people hate it. And they don't. Right. I really think that was a situation that Paul just didn't realize how much of a jerk he can sound like when yep. he... When he goes into his, you know, gorilla mode, mm -hmm. and a lot of chefs, I can name a half a dozen chefs around town who have that same problem. <laughs> well, who will just jump all over people right. and make it worse? Yeah, you know, there's there's a great book out there. I think everyone ought to read called "So You've Been Publicly Shamed." Mm -hmm. That'll give you a pretty good idea of just how bad it can get. Right. When you screw up and you try to not admit you did, mm -hmm. it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And so that gave that guy a chance to jump in all over again. And, and it really made me sad mm -hmm. to see him going out on that note. Right. Because so many of us went to him at the time that happened and said, dude, you were handling this completely wrong. I know his PR person did. I know other people in culinary who went to him yeah. and said, don't do this. You right. need to. You need to fix this, and it's easy to fix if you handle it right. Right. But people get getting, mad. Getting in. And they getting get getting into a, a social media battle and with somebody they, yeah. who's who's trying to prove a point. Old old newsroom saying, "Never get in a stinking contest with a skunk." <laughs> now, I'm not saying the man who who raised that was a skunk in any way. Right. But no one can. If you're just trying to outstink each other, it's not going to be pretty. Right. Right. That's not how you handle things in yep. the social media world. And I think, unfortunately, there are a lot of people in the food world who, you know, people get so opinionated about food. What? I've had people what do you think call that's me about? names. Oh, it's, oh, I know what it is. It's identity. Uh -huh. It's family identity. It's tribal identity. Mm -hmm. It's it's uh, your you, social you know, social status. Your maybe. social status, but it's also how dare you say my grandmother did it wrong. Yeah, yeah. If the only version you've ever had was your grandmother's, that means that I'm saying that your grandmother was a stupid person. Right. I'm not. But there is a lot of ownership with food mm -hmm. and ownership of our own identities. And if somebody challenges that, it gets dangerous quickly in human beings. Yes. And so when you're in a restaurant and you're hoping, I mean, I go into every restaurant I go into, I am hoping I'm going to have the best meal I ever had. <laughs> Always hoping. I, know, I wish I didn't do that sometimes. <laughs> well, and try and understand yeah. what your expectations, you right. have to manage your you expectations manage your of expectations. what people can actually do for you. Right, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that people are, Ronnie Lundy, who wrote the book Vittles and, you know, has been a food writer in, the, in Appalachia for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. She specializes in the food of Appalachia. And she's always really interesting on this subject of, you know, the way your corn tasted in this holler was different from the way the corn tasted in somebody else's holler. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of how you knew that those weren't your people. You belong over here. Mm. You know, it's yeah. all tribal identity. Yeah. And that's still behind so much of what we think about food. Mm -hmm. It's identity. Yeah. And if somebody's playing with your identity, you don't like it. So I think that's part of why, plus it's money. Yep. You know, you're charging people money for something, they're going to get real defensive real quick. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that one drives me crazy is people not understanding what a meal is going to cost them and then going off on a tear about, oh, it's too expensive. Yeah. Give me, give me some of your thoughts on this whole um, critique culture mm. situation we got. Everybody's a critic. Everybody's a oh, Lord. Like yeah. years ago mm -hmm. during the whole you know, early kind of Yelp days, mm -hmm. I was very anti all this Yelp stuff because and you there, should have been. there's no control, right. right? There's no consistency. Yeah. Right. And I think me and Helen talked about this mm -hmm. when I got Helen on here 
And the thing I really appreciate, like I was always terrified of Helen coming in because, because, <laughs> yeah. of the, because I know a she, lot of people were afraid of her. Right, because she could potentially yeah. make or break your thing or whatever. Although I don't think she was ever, she never intended no, to. No, she to, was, ne- to, no. And that's the thing. You, I think everybody who does food reviewing is, I, I don't call it critiquing, I call yeah. it reviewing. Okay. And everybody who does reviewing has to know that's somebody's livelihood. Right. That's somebody's baby. Yeah. And, and, and she took they that put very everything seriously. on the line for that baby, mm-hmm. and you had better treat it respectfully. Yep. You know, uh, people used to complain that Helen wasn't negative enough. Mm-hmm. I would hear that at Johnson and Wales. I would hear that at CPCC right. from people in the education, culinary education. How come she's not harder on people? Because well, that's real hard to do. Yeah. You know, and difficult and dangerous. Yeah. I think I told you and I had a conversation about this once, and I told you, and I'm I'm pretty sure it's still available. Um, Hannah Raskin, who was the reviewer in Charleston, mm-hmm. and I know you're, you've, you've had some we've, thoughts we've about had, Hannah. Yeah, I've had some thoughts. You've I think had some I, thoughts. I think that we're beyond that now. Oh, good. Because yeah. I think Hannah's really good at yeah. what she does. She's I think very we're analytical. But, she, but Hannah actually wrote an ebook, and it's, I believe, still available on Amazon. It's called Yelp Help. And it was four people writing on Yelp how to write a restaurant review. Mm-hmm. And it broke the restaurant review down into its basic components Mm -hmm. at its heart restaurant reviewing is consumer reporting right all food reporting at its base is consumer reporting Mm -hmm. and restaurant reviewing should tell me is this a a good restaurant review needs to tell me what is what are they trying to be what is the story of the food this place is trying to accomplish why should i go here and spend my money and what can i expect to get in exchange for my money i mean Break it down. If it doesn't have those things, mm-hmm. you're not really telling me anything useful. Right. And, you know, I mean. I, I think the thing the thing that got me on the anti-Hannah <laughs> campaign <laughs> yeah. was after my first appearance on Top Chef. Yeah. Um, the episode where I kind of confronted my addiction with, uh-huh. of heroin. Uh-huh. And she wrote something in the paper about how somehow my previous addictions may have something to do with my poor judgment in some of the things we were doing in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And that, I no, was like, I was fair. like, you crossed the line. Yeah, that's not fair. Yeah, and, and, I, and I didn't appreciate that. Yeah, and she can be tough. Yeah, oh, and she, she is, <laughs> she tough. is tough. She is tough. <laughs> and, and like she, you know, the reviews that she did of, you know, my restaurants down there weren't bad per se. They weren't great. I mean, she, she slammed us on a couple things, but it's, yeah. you know, but we were ready. I mean, we knew that it was going to be tough. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with that. Like, that's fine. Yeah. The issue that, I, that I'm trying to figure out now is, like, this critique culture, right? It's like everybody mm-hmm. is, like, everybody knows best. And everybody, and they have a platform to do it. Yeah. It's the only thing that's new about that, though, is the platform. Because mm. it used to be people were doing it, but they were doing it word of mouth. And you didn't have any way to fight against it. Right. Now you see it. You know, well, you, you can see on social media what they're saying the re- about it. The you. reach is a lot further, yeah, too. Yeah, it does. It know? does reach further and quicker. And, you know. And I think that feeds into some of that burnout mm-hmm. situation for chefs. It goes to that whole, like, you know. Oh, I could see that. The yeah. hospitality business, right? We're here to take care of people, to. Right. You know, I mean, yes, there are many chefs that are these ego-driven, like, the best chef in the world kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. But but most chefs, I think, just, they want to take care of people. They yeah. want they want people to come in and have a great time. Well, in the part in, of the public, their, how much of it is entitlement? Mm-hmm. That we all feel we are entitled to what we think we deserve. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, what are my thoughts on that? Gosh, <laughs> I'm not sure. I, mm-hmm. You know, I do feel like we... 
I felt the same way in news coverage. We all create the world that we want the world to be. We all have a hand in making the world how we want it. Mm -hmm. And so if we want a world that is negative and critical and full of noise and whoever likes the loudest noise gets to be heard, then that's the world we're going to have. And if we are more thoughtful and put a little more time into managing our expectations and to understanding what it takes to do what you do, mm-hmm. why what you do costs what it costs, mm-hmm. then we may have a world of restaurants that are allowed to be a little more considerate. I mean, I one of the things that, that has changed completely in Charlotte in the time that I have been here in the last 10 years, really, because I think it's since about 2008, Mm -hmm. um, has been the rise of the chef-owned restaurant in Charlotte. Yes. You know, Charlotte, 10, 12 years ago, was totally a high-end chain town. Yep. And then you started getting, you know, I mean, Bruce Moffat was one of the early ones. Tim Grudy, who, Lord help him, has ended up all around town, and I (laughs) loved him. Yeah. But we started getting these guys like you, Mm -hmm. like Paul, like Greg, um, Chris Coleman. Chris Coleman, thank you. Yep. He would be angry at me if I left that out. Um, <laughs> who own their own place, and their place is an expression of them, but also an expression of this place where we are. Mm-hmm. Because they're all working with local ingredients, and so they're working with the same stuff I can get in my kitchen. Yep. Uh, from I, the same people. From the they're, same people. You can meet yes. them at the market. Yes, and If I you're do. motivated enough, yeah, you, can go, exactly. you can go ask them. Yeah. Hey, I'm, I got these tomatoes. What should I do with them? Uh-huh. And I used to, yeah, it yeah. used to be you guys were at them. Now you go through fresh list. Yeah. So yeah. we never see you guys anymore, yeah, but I'm still there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think that that's, that changed Charlotte, that camaraderie. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a time when I was covering restaurants and chefs and all that stuff here when it was very, very elbowing. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of rivalry. Mm-hmm. And then that started to shift mm-hmm. into being a little bit more about a community. The yeah. community of chefs. And I thought our food really took a turn for the better when that happened. Yeah. And I hate to see, I, I can't even imagine what's going to come out of the situation we're in now mm-hmm. because I really hate to see that lost. Me too. And that's kind of where I was going with this whole thing about the, the, um, the bill today. Yeah. Is like, I really, I fear that if they don't re-up the funds mm-hmm. i mean we're uh, probably tens of thousands of restaurants are going to close yeah in the next year or two yeah no I, doubt yeah and and not necessarily and some of them are because close anyway yeah some Even of them with will the clo- help they're going to close some of them it's will just close. so tragic and, and some of it might not be the financial aspect mm-hmm. right i mean if they've got to this point yes it means there's already been a huge number of closures mm-hmm. so people res- restaurants are doing some volume yeah now yeah. We don't have the staff that we need to do. Now, is excellent. that true? Because I've heard some people telling me that their staffing situation has gotten better. Yes. And that they were able, the people who use their PPP money to keep their staff going at least a little bit, to keep that loyalty, mm-hmm. that those guys tell me they're doing okay as far as staffing. So my, our experience is that we are good. Yeah. Now, we, we used... I can't remember the exact number, but there was some fucking post or article or some bullshit thing on. The, you know what <laughs> Tell I'm talking. You, really you know what I'm talking about. Somebody claimed some some ex employees oh. claimed that we we mishandled the PPP money, right? Amongst a bunch of other bullshit. Yeah. That was targeted at my oh, partners. Oh right. Yes. Okay. Now um, I know what you're talking about. Yes. So, indeed. So we went back and 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 looked at all the. You know, because mm-hmm. all that stuff is controlled by the government. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so we went back to all the receipts and checked in, and it was something like 97% or 96% of the funds 
went to our employees. Mm -hmm. They claimed that we like totally, I was like, whatever. We are not suffering from lack of employees. We also started the tip the kitchen thing, yeah. which was has been a game changer. Yeah, Ga Like I did an article uh, or an interview yesterday about it. And um, I mean, we've raised over $1.6 million in the past, it's been a year and a month, so 13 months. Wow. For really? our employees. Wow, that's amazing. It's people gave that much out of yeah, and it cost. I mean, it cost us to do it. Yeah, you know, it, like because we matched, we matched back at the house, it, what, all that stuff. It's all yeah. out there for people. Yeah, so it did cost us an operational cost to do it, but our employees are making more money than I ever made yeah. as a, as a kitchen manager. Like my line cooks are making more than I made as a sous chef. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's crazy. Wow. And, and so, you know, that's huge and that's helping us to retain and, and, and draw in some, some quality people and stuff. But I fear that, you know, the burnout part of this, mm -hmm. like the people, the, the people that missed the first round, right. Mm -hmm. Who've been limping around through this thing. Yeah have just the stress and the loans and just all that kind of drama yeah. to get to this point. Even if they get the money, they're going to be maybe yeah. too far it's gone. Not gonna, it's not going to, it's not going to. And the I other thing too that. is to remember all the smaller places, the mom and pops. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've lost yeah. some real iconic Charlotte mm -hmm. restaurants. And I, you know, I did a story recently looking at four, Steve Price at Price's Chicken Coop, mm -hmm. uh, the guy at Zach's, um, uh, Stevie Spoon at Spoons and uh, George Dices at Mr. K's. Mm -hmm. You know, these were all little bedrock Greek-owned restaurants in Charlotte, and those mm -hmm. places are gone now. And every single one of them said they didn't miss it. Yeah. These were people who had spent, who had devoted their lives, usually worked 12, 16-hour days, no problem, loved serving the community, and they don't miss it. Yeah. And that made me sad. Yeah. That is that, you know, they all said, I miss the customers, I miss certain people, but no, I wouldn't go back in a heartbeat. Do you think that the public has a responsibility to protect these institutions if Ooh. that's what they want? Ooh. I think the public has to support things. That you know, they want, right? That it's they like, want. it's exactly like exactly what if, I'm saying. You've yeah. got to create the world you want. Right. And if the world you want is a place in which a Mr. K's can survive, then you've got to go there. You're right. I you got to go get I, a hot dog. Helen and or I used a... to talk about this all the time when we were working. It would drive us crazy. We would we would print that some place was getting ready to close, and people would scream and holler, you know, oh, my God, I yep. love that place. And when you say, well, when was the last time you went there? Oh, I was there two years ago. Yeah. Do you really <laughs> think they can survive on that? Yeah. If, so, if you love a place, support a place. Yes. If you love a place, don't forget to stop by and tell them, Thank you for being there to feed me. Thank mm -hmm. you for being a part of my daily life. Totally. You know, understand yep. that you create the world you want. And I think that's the key, right? Is like a hundred percent when you, and that, that kind of got my thoughts going when you, when you mentioned that, you know, you have, a, you create the world you want is like, go to the restaurants that you want to exist. Exactly. If you want a world of high end steakhouses, like, okay, <laughs> like they're there. Yeah. They're, they're there. there. And if you've got the money to support them, well, go, you know, yeah. but they're probably not using locally raised beef. No. And they're and not they're shopping at the market. They're probably not using locally baked rolls and no. they're probably not supporting, you know, all the chefs to, you know, boy yeah. and girl farm and all these other people. Yep. They're not buying from them. They're buying from a food broker. Right. That's, that's not supporting your community, and it's not making your air quality better because the fields around you were still being worked. I, you oh, know. You're going down this. You are going down the hole. <laughs> I've, I'm, gone, I've gone way down I the hole I am with you. I'm with you on all that. 
Yeah, always. When that when local food stuff came around, I was just because I remember when I started food writing, it was before all that. Yeah. You know, there were stories I couldn't run because you couldn't get the ingredients here. Yep. You know, there were there were no you go to the farmers market and it would open on the first day of spring only because it was the first day of spring. Everything in there until July was from Florida. Yep. You know, it took a long time. And when I started going in there in the spring and seeing locally raised peas. It was a watershed yeah, moment like, for me. Whoa. Yeah. You're like, this is real? Yeah. Am, I, yeah. am I in like Candyland now? Am I in Berkeley? <laughs> yeah. Because you know, I would right. go out to California and go to the markets out there and think, why don't we have this at home? Why? Yeah. I know we have farmland around us. Why don't we have this? And then yeah. we did. Mm-hmm. And I had editors who would get upset if I wrote too much about it because they thought I was not being critical enough oh. of the local food movement. Well, you, I mean, you've been a huge supporter over the years. I mean, you're not supposed Peace. to be a supporter in my job. Well, I mean, <laughs> but, but yes, I am an advocate. An advocate. Of knowing a- where your food better. comes yeah. from, eating seasonally, eating locally, understanding who grew your food. You were a member of PCG, right? Oh, I still am. Yeah. yeah. But you were when you were the editor, too, weren't you? Yeah, I was. Yeah. So because I'm, it gave me access to right. information. There you and go. The so open, there was and that food, but the, you know, that Facebook page where everybody, you know, traded stuff back and forth. You know, my editors yeah. never complained about that because I was getting information. Right. Okay. Yeah. It was a tool. It was a tool. But yeah. also advocacy for but what's, yes. what's yeah. important. Yeah. And getting to know who was doing what was important and who a real player was versus somebody who was walking the walk. Mm-hmm. There were plenty of them who, I won't name names, yes. who I would see in the farmer's market on Saturday morning with their acolytes following behind them. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't order stuff from farmers in advance. They like to be seen walking, strolling like a potentate through the farmer's market and then buying up everything in large quantities so there wasn't anything left for those of us following behind them. <laughs> I won't say who that was, but, you know, there were a lot of chefs who would claim to be local who were not. Right. Um, so I also tried to make sure that I knew who was actually doing what they advocated. Right. I was like the polar opposite of that. Like I would, <laughs> yeah, I would are. show up. The good guys. Yeah. I would show up at Sammy's farm to like to because I wanted to learn. Oh yeah, you and he was just like, yeah. he was like Jesus man. He's like he's like this guy. So he just put me to work. Yeah, and he's like I'm just gonna have to put him to work because yeah. he's not gonna like go away. Turkey killing day. They would never <laughs> yeah. let me go and do turkey killing day. Why? I always wanted to. It's, well, the it, editors it, it, were a little it's, it's, hinky. Inten- it's intense. Yeah, and the and the editors were and and Sammy, you know, the yeah. farmers who were doing it were sort of like, I don't think you want to tell the public what that looks like. Yeah, because there's and some it, things people can't handle. Right. Yeah. And you know, my feeling was, you know, you can eat the food, know what it takes to get the food. Yeah. I mean, I did a sto- one of my best stories I ever did, best things that I ever got to do. I spent a year. They actually let me spend a year on a story where I followed a country ham. Mm-hmm. From pig to plate. Oh, that's cool. It was so cool. Where was the where was the I uh, started they had the pig was raised by Grateful Growers Farm oh, in awesome. Denver yeah, when it was yeah, still yeah. Natalie and Cassie. Awesome. And um I got to pick out my pig. I got to know my pig, spent time in the field yep. with him, and then I went to the abattoir. They would not let me be there while mm-hmm. the pig was slaughtered. Yep. They wouldn't let me in. That's hard. It is hard. And I was bummed because I yeah. really wanted to follow it all the way through and they wouldn't let me in. But I showed up and got my ham and then took the ham to West Jefferson to the only open air ham house <laughs> yep. left in North Carolina, Vanoy Hams. Oh, and wow. he he did my ham, you know, cured my ham for eight months. And I would it. go up there every few months and get to go into the smokehouse 
yeah, the, check you know, on the ham house and, yeah. and watch it shrink and you know all that stuff. Cool. And then we, you know, Joe Bonaparte helped me with that story. Oh, and I love uh, Joe. we all got I know I miss Joe. God, where is he at? He's in Myrtle Beach. Still. Okay, yeah. yeah. Is, Last is he time still doing the school down Myrtle, there? I think so. I know okay. Jeff Blount is. Yeah, um, right. And he came to my house and we cooked <laughs> that sucker. And you know, Ada yeah. Ada wrote this story, you know, in in parts about how following what it took to make a country ham. Yeah, that that's amazing. Fun. Yeah, that's super cool. <laughs> that was and, a fun and, story. But I think, and that's a great topic because I think one of the issues with the whole thing is that people are so disconnected from they their are. food these they days. Get I mean, really that offended. is. Yeah. You know, I was in, I was in Europe years and years and years ago when I still lived in New York. I was working for Danielle. And I went to France. Yeah, I just remember the food there. That mm-hmm. like that changed the oh, that, yeah. that changed yeah. everything for me. When I worked for Danielle, the farmer would bring the suckling pigs mm-hmm. from the farm. And um, the station that I worked at during the prep, like before the dinner service, was in the basement next to the saucier, the guy who's <laughs> who, the guy who's cutting uh-huh. all the all the uh-huh. meats and all that. Uh-huh. So I was the entremetti. I was the veg guy. Yeah. So I'm down there like turning my vegetables and like do, getting everything prepared. <laughs> And the farmer would come down with this pigs, pigs on his shoulder and throw them down on the scale. Yeah. And I remember the moment, like he put the pig down and for some reason I had the urge to like look into its eyes. Uh-huh. And so I like opened the eyes of this pig and like look at these blank eyes and I had like this moment. <laughs> and I remember yeah. it like yeah. so vividly and I was like, whoa. Cause yeah. I never thought yeah. of where a pork chop comes from. Exactly. Before. And I was a, I was a professional cook at this, this day. It's, yeah. But and that was my first like, butchered and broken down. yeah, where yeah. I actually I saw the that. whole thing and I was like, oh my God, yeah. like I've seen chickens and all that stuff. But like when you see a whole, you know, mammal, yeah. <laughs> it was like, holy shit. Yeah. So anyway, so, so fast forward. So then I go to France cause I was like, okay, whoa. Like I'm, <laughs> I bought in to this whole uh-huh, chef thing. Uh-huh. So I go to France and the markets there. Oh God, I love them. Were fucking incredible. <gasps> like, yes. so I was in the South on the Riviera yeah. and, um, and I went to this farmer's market mm-hmm. and the market was like this, I don't know, tin hanger type thing. Uh-huh. And it was all the ladies like with, from their gardens, bringing down tomatoes and eggplants and all that kind of stuff. There was yeah. a guy in there with like fresh pasta, like yeah. hanging up in his little booth. And um, directly next door was a covered um, stall where the fishermen were literally dragging the fish up from the boat. <laughs> and hitting them on the head? <laughs> no, they, they were putting them on the ice alive. Uh-huh. They were still wiggling. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And the like people, for and Bleu. Yeah, the people were lined up there, and they're like, I'll take that one, that one. And they yeah. would just yeah. whack it, whack gut it, it on the head and yeah. put in a piece yeah. of paper, and yeah. off you go. I was like, what is going on over here? <laughs> right? Like, coming from the States, like, that doesn't exist. Yeah. Here, well, it does, but only if you go into you have to international neighborhoods. You know, I mean, you know, you can do that at um, Super G Mart here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can go there. They've got the fish in the tank. You can look up on the wall at the types of cuts. Yeah, and you can say, "I want it cut like that." You point at the number, and you know, you can do those things now here, but you couldn't. You couldn't. Yeah, and uh, and that was a game changer. And I, I think that 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 element. If our, if our society could tap into that a little bit, mm-hmm. right? That appreciation for like the food that we eat and yeah. stuff. And um, I think there is, there are people who do, but then there are people who only want to know how much it costs. Yeah. And what is that old saying? They know the cost of everything and the value of nothing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of, you know, I've, I've had this argument with people so many times yeah. where, you know, the original block and grinder was two blocks from my house, yep. you know, on Providence oh, yeah. Road. And I remember 
so many people in my neighborhood complaining because the cheeseburger was what sixteen fifty. Mm, yeah, and I would go, <laughs> which was a lot back then. Which was a lot, but, back then, but it was it a locally baked bur- bun. Yeah. It was locally raised beef. Yeah. It was you know I mean that was ground in house. That plate was intentional. Mm-hmm. And then when they closed. Um, a, a few months later, another restaurant opened there, and mm-hmm. I go in, and their cheeseburger's like fourteen fifty, fifteen bucks. Right. And I'm like, you know, yeah, it was worth it more, a dollar fifty more Before. to have something that was better. Totally. Totally. You know, I mean, it's we have to understand that we get what we pay for, and right. too often, you know, we're we're too. And I understand it's very elitist of me to say that. Mm-hmm. I can't really afford that now. I don't eat out all that much these days because now I'm a freelancer and I don't make shit. <laughs> <laughs> Freelance is not a way to make a living, let me promise you. And nobody, you know, people offer me free food. I don't take it. I've always yeah. tried to avoid taking that stuff. So, yes, I know there are many people who cannot afford to eat better than they do. Right. But those of us, those of you who can afford it, have almost a responsibility to. Yeah. We yeah. need to, we need to teach those people how to cook the good food for themselves. <laughs> well, that's what I was doing. Yeah, that's what we need to do. Right? <laughs> Back in the beginning, that's what I was yeah. trying to do: was show people you can cook better. Yeah, and simply and easily if you if you're willing to go out there and find put things. put in the effort. Yeah, people don't want to put in the effort to yeah. cook. Well, it's not that they don't want to. I think it's that they're it's scared or they're overwhelmed or it seems like homework. Yeah, it's like when you talk about nutrition, people think it's homework and they don't mm-hmm. want to hear it. And it takes time too. Yeah, it it's does a time, take time thing. But you people have to are, decide out yeah. of the things you're going to do every week. What am I going to One of commit? them is going to be go to the farmer's market, get good food, and and make sure I plan what I'm. I plan my meals. I know mm-hmm. I don't waste things. Yep. You know, that's my life. <laughs> I do, I do quick fires out of my refrigerator. That's what I do now. I go home and I miss. I love those yeah. quick fires. Were always my favorite. My fiance says, "So what are we having for dinner tonight?" Yeah. See, I and do I'm that like, every day now. I'm like, I don't know. So I open it up and I'm like, well, looks like we're having broccoli stems and uh, yeah. broccoli stems and roasted chicken. My husband, my husband loves that because he always says that I never cook anything twice. Yeah. It's always yeah. arrives in a different, completely different form yeah. the th- next three times. You right. See it. Yeah. yeah. I rarely ever go to the grocery store f- to buy a meal. Yeah. Like, re- like rarely. Like yeah. we'll go. There's always standards, right? Yeah. Like. Like there's standards in the fridge. There's yeah. always a head of broccoli. There's always like, there's like, you know what I mean? It's like your pantry. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I, I live off of Costco and yeah, yeah. So like, Trader and Joe's. I just kind of have to figure it out. Yeah. You know, and like a happy day is like when I grab like a new spice from like you know off the internet or something. I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. I recently discovered. Ta- how do you pronounce it? T a i g i j i n. Oh, tagine. Tagine. Yeah. Yes, I've been playing with tagine oh, lately. I've I, also I, been playing with labna. I've been making uh, labna a lot. Mm, I like labna. I like labna a I lot. I do like labna. <laughs> Let's shift gears. Let's go to. I want to talk about what you think about. First of all, blanket general statement about food trends. Just kind of what you think about that generally, and and what why what do you think that's about? Because I'm curious. Yeah. And then what do you think, I'm not asking you specifically what the trends are, but what do you think like the hot topics are going to be in the food restaurant uh-huh. atmosphere over the next year or two? Because it's a very, I mean, we're coming out of the pandemic. Yeah. There's all this like inflation and shit and societal scarring from, you know, yeah. antisocial. And so I'm just kind of wondering what you see happening. Mm-hmm over the next year or so from a food and restaurant perspective? Boy, is that a hard one to answer. Yeah, sorry. So trend-wise, I have never been further from understanding what the trends are than I've 
in my life. Mm-hmm. I used to have to keep track of that. Uh-huh. And I used to have to write that January story every year. Right. Here's what the trends are The hot are trends be. for 2020 yeah, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> I could not give you an answer to that right now. Okay. I mentioned recently that I was judging the cookbook contest for um, Tales of the Cocktail. The one trend I noticed out of this year's books is that Japanese cocktails have suddenly exploded. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if okay. you want to know anything about that, just go to your local bookstore because there's a zillion books on this now. Yeah. Um, things like we're getting beyond sake and into shoshu and, uh-huh. you know, all of these other things are coming around. So that's a legitimate trend, I think. Um, I think that's partly a trend because in the shutdown, we had to learn to make our own drinks, uh-huh. which my husband had been doing for a long time anyway. Yeah. So, so you, you were a leg up on cocktail all. stuff. Yeah, that's always been a thing for us. You, what did, I have, you did write a book about. Yes, like bourbon I and did whiskey, right? two books. Yeah. I did so. I did a How to Cook with Bourbon book, and I did a How to Tour um, Craft Distilleries in the South, right. which was so much fun. <laughs> uh, didn't sell worth a darn, but boy, did I have fun doing it. Well, um, let, we'll plug that after this thought. Let's go through the <laughs> sign, then we'll plug the book. No, books. I was also going to say, in Charlotte, <laughs> one of the things I've really, really noticed in a big-time way over the last three years has been the rise of African-American chefs and mm-hmm. and not only making themselves known, but the rest of us getting to know them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry, if you missed the Bay Haven Black Food and Wine Festival last October, they just announced today when the dates are going to be next year. Oh, it's cool. October 19th Nice through, I think, the 23rd. Um, and right. I've had so many people come up to me when I've mentioned Bay Haven and said, what was that? I never heard about it. Mm-hmm. Read your information, people. Yeah. <laughs> um, we had an amazing thing that happened at Camp North End, and yep. it's going to continue. And it started out of soul food sessions. Mm-hmm. It started with Michael Bowling, who I, don't, I think doesn't get enough credit, yep. Jamie Barnes, Greg Williams, and Greg and Sabrina Collier. And Greg and Sabrina, incredibly organized people have really pushed that forward yep. and, and pushed it forward in a mentoring way. Mm-hmm. So now there's all of these businesses opening around Leah and Louise and Camp North End where they're helping young black talent who came through their restaurant open their own smaller businesses there. Yep. So that is something that is definitely, I'm so excited about. I mean, five years ago, if you had asked me to name, you know, 10 black chefs or food producers in Charlotte, I could have done it. That doesn't mean they weren't there. Yeah, they it were. It meant that I couldn't name them. Well, and I that think, embarrassed me and saddened me. I think at that point, though, and so I interviewed Greg um, uh-huh. a, a few months ago, and uh-huh. we had an awesome conversation. Oh, I, I mean, I, I, love, I love him Greg. anyways. Like, we're just, <laughs> we get we get along anyways. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but we talked a lot about this, and um, I think at that point, I think he touched on this in the convo, if people want to go back and listen. Uh-huh. But um, they were there. They just weren't in the forefront, and they weren't getting the recognition. Exactly. Right. So exactly. And and I think that's the thing um, that Greg is like one of the real values of of him and Sabrina's mm-hmm. talent here mm-hmm. is they are a face that can push this thing forward. Yeah. Um, to help everybody else get the recognition they need, you know, because yeah. they're they're pretty outspoken. Like yeah. Greg is not oh, afraid. Oh no, to, not a shrinking out there yeah. at all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And so, you know, and then also, you know, they do great work yeah. and, and they're super inclusive. So that helps like spread that around. Right. And, uh, um, and I'm so excited yeah. about that. That's a different Charlotte mm-hmm. than we had in food. And so uh, that is truly something that has changed. I'm interested to see how that's going to, and this goes to my second question for you about the, what the landscape what, looks what like. What the landscape is. Yeah, oh, I'm I interested think that's to see just going to continue to grow. What that element does yeah, for 
Charlotte cuisine, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's already doing more. Yeah. You know, there's already like Jasmine Macon with her with her donuts. Um, mm-hmm. Oscar uh, is it Peterson with uh, Jimmy Pearls. You know, these things are continuing to grow, and these are younger people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that part of it excites the heck out of me. I see a lot of that ahead. Mm-hmm. I hope that we don't lose so much of our old Greek community in food mm-hmm. because that is a part of Charlotte's flavor. Um, I'll pl- I'll do my own plug here. So there's a new book coming out. Um, Marcy Cohen Ferris, F E R R I S was a professor of American studies at Chapel Hill. Uh, she's now retired. And so she has done a book called Edible North Carolina. Oh, cool. And a lot of us around the state wrote chapters for that book. And so I wrote a chapter oh, nice. on the blue collar underpinnings of Charlotte's food and how people don't realize we weren't always a banking city. Right. You know, there's uh, yeah. A, there's it was actually very, just until yeah. kind of our, the new, the new world where we a exactly. banking city. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so I really cool. looked at, you know, sort of the where the Greek stuff came from, where Charlotte's African-American community culinarily came from, and where those meat and threes and those people coming in from out in the country mm-hmm. to take textile mill jobs here created what is around us and is beloved in Charlotte food. Cool. When and is that coming out? That comes out now. It was just released last oh, week. Oh, awesome. And cool. That's why so it was Chapel Hill. I went over for the public for the publication party. Nice. Uh, which was really cool. There were so many people that people I knew on social media that I'd never met and people I know really well like Bill Smith and Oh, you know, cool, yeah. Bill's got a piece in there. I mean everybody really Tom Hanchett's got a piece in it. Um, on Charlotte's um, international communities. And so it's, it's, the idea was that she used different people all over the state to do kind of a snapshot of Charlotte, of North Carolina, but not just North Carolina. You can use that to understand other states around the country and ah. how their food kind of takes place and how it shapes them. Wow. And okay. So it's really Interesting. Exciting yeah. Book. That's that's ex- that yeah, is exciting. Baxter Miller's pictures. I you know I I really was excited to be a part of that. And you can you can pick that up on. Should be at any bookstore right any now. Bookstore? It's just coming out in cool. UNC Press. All right. So you know, um, in fact, they'll do. We'll do some kind of an event here. Marcy's got a whole lineup of of book signings and things, and so there are plans to do something here. Cool. With me and Tom Hanchett and whoever else is in this neighborhood that we you know can all get together and do right something. On. Yeah. If you want, if you want to do something at the restaurants, let me know. I will. Maybe we'll I'll do. We could yeah. do a little, you know, book signing thing, and <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll. That. Maybe the we'll, one that the one they did in Chapel Hill features. was at Lantern, so I got to go eat at Lantern. Oh, nice! Which I, you know, had never eaten at Lantern, Andrea Rusing's restaurant. Yeah, because Andrea's got a thing in the book too. Oh, cool! Um, Kia Mastriani's in it. Uh huh. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of people who have awesome. pieces in the book. Very yeah, cool. So that's a really good book to look at for. Where is North Carolina in food um, in a wider kind of way? So I look, I'm looking at that. I'm looking ahead though to see what is. You know, I can't read the future any more than anybody else can. Yeah. I mean, how do Especially we have another now, shutdown? Right? And can we survive it if we do? Yeah. You know, I hope that people appreciate the communities directly around them, mm-hmm. and the the importance of being a part of that community, including your food community. Mm-hmm. I think there are certain people who have always felt that. Yeah. And I hope that that's more entrenched now that we were in such a point of isolation for a while there. We couldn't right. be around one another. Right. So there is this impulse right now to want to run up to every person you see and hug them. Yeah, right? <laughs> I know. We did that in the hallway. Oh I was God. like, uh, is that weird? <laughs> it's people. I'm yeah. so glad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. But I uh, honestly, dude, if you know what's coming next, you tell me because 
I haven't got a clue. I haven't got a clue. (laughs) All I know is we got stuff we're working on. (laughs) Always working on something. And yes, I'm working on a memoir. What's yeah? So what's next for you? Tell me. What are you working on? Let's talk about memoir. uh, Um, so I do, I'm a freelancer now, so I write for a lot of magazines. I've got a piece for Southern Living that I did a couple of months ago. I do a lot for Our State Magazine, do a lot for Charlotte Magazine, Charlotte Ledger. But in my side life, I am working on a book um, that's a memoir. It's not a food book. Um, it's about my early life mm-hmm. and my very strange Gothic Southern family. <laughs> and it's called The Accidental Family. And it's about how my parents had basically an arranged marriage because Whoa. of adoption. And so, you know, being a 70s firebrand feminist type, I, yeah. there are things that I've learned about my family after my family died. It's only me and my oh, sister left. Wow, okay. My parents are gone. My brother was killed. And then in the middle of all of that, we found out that we had uh, two family members that we didn't know existed. What? Yeah. Get out of here. Seriously. This is a real story. It is a real story. Holy and it smokes. Is a bizar- it's a bizarre one. Yeah. And in that, writing about that, I decided to write about myself yeah. and how I came to be the person I am while being raised in a family full of secrets where nothing made sense and I had to go make sense of the world myself. Wow. So, yeah, I'm cool. going to learn the fact that I used to live in my car. <laughs> yeah. So when when it, And I when, was a very wild young lady for a while there. Well, I think I think anybody <laughs> who I think knows, anybody knows you kind of knows. <laughs> I don't know the stories, but I can tell by knowing yeah. you over the years. Yeah. You've got stories. <laughs> yeah, I do. And I, it's funny, I'm in a writing group, a memoir writing group, and I, one woman has read the whole, you know, first draft and she said, "Oh my God, how did you? I got to know more about how you ended up like this." <laughs> <laughs> so when do you when do you suspect you'll be done with that? I'm hoping to have the second. I'm doing the second draft now. I'm hoping to have the second draft done by you know fall, mm-hmm. and then you know it's a question of trying to find somebody who wants to actually publish it. And mm-hmm. who knows? So that's one of the scary things in the shutdown. Everybody wrote a memoir. Yeah, right. You got a there's a. <laughs> A There's deep a pool. ton of them. Yeah. So, yeah, you're going to go out there to the publishers and they go, oh, no, not another one. Yeah, but you've got, you've got some connects. I do. You've got some I connects over who, the years. Who, yeah, that's actually in the freelance world that's been fun yeah. because most of the editors that I write for contact me. I don't have to pitch cool. a lot. Yeah, they, that's They good. know who I am. They know what I do. And do, you, do you get hit up a lot? Yeah. You get a lot of? Yeah, usually every week somebody calls me. You want to do a cookbook? To, to you do and me? No. <laughs> you want to well, do a cookbook with me? Uh, Maybe, maybe. Uh, maybe. We'll, we'll talk I more could. about it. I could. I can. I can ghost write. I know <laughs> how to right. ghost write. All right. The only question is making enough money for both of us. Yeah. yeah. I, for me, it's not about. It wouldn't be about money. It's more uh, about yeah. for passion. For me, it would. <laughs> yeah. We'll make sure we get you paid. I don't, Done lots yeah. of passion stuff. Yeah. No, need money now. Yeah. We'll, we'll 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 talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe mm. next year you'll be able to, hopefully. Ooh, memoir books take a long time. Do they? they so do. once You've you get it done, a book have you? No. I have not done a book. That's why I want to do it. No. No? Oh, I thought you had. You know, books are years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, books can take a while. The piece that I did for Marcy's Edible North Carolina, I wrote that before the shutdown. I started writing. Yeah. And then, you know, so that's been like three years ago. Gotcha. That I started writing. How long does it take once you get once you get a finished product and you get it to a publisher? A year. A year for them to Usually. By the time you get it published, by the time you get it printed and the whole thing shipped back from China. Yeah. And then distributed, and then, you know, and basically, somebody told me years ago, this guy who worked for Workman, I think his last name was Workman, I think he was that guy, um, who said, 
that you should not do a book unless you're willing to live with that subject for at least five years <laughs> because you will spend five years as the bourbon lady uh-huh. or you will spend five years as the craft distilling person um, because you've got to do the research, you've got to write the book, you've got to get through the editing, you got to get through the printing, and then you've got three years yeah. where you are selling that book right. all the time. To publishers, to whoever. And people, you got books in the back of your car. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I got, you know, I've always got a carton of books in the back <laughs> yeah. of my car because gotcha. I can sell them to people. I mean, you know, that's what the book world is. Yeah. It's not the glamour people think it is, right. you know? Mm-hmm. But it is a wonderful and special world, but it's very different than what you think it is. Yeah. It's that sausage you don't want to see made. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to a podcast earlier today on my way up here. I was, I was listening. It's a sailing podcast. Mm-hmm. And um, oh, cool. the sailor I that, that I listened to is this guy named John Kreshmer. And he he's an amazing writer. Mm-hmm. He writes he writes about sailing. That's mm-hmm. all. But he started off as like he's just this wild you know, youngster traveling the world, like a, do, yeah. do, a sailboat delivery captain. So he would basically <laughs> pick pick boats up in the Mediterranean oh. and sail them to the Caribbean for, oh. for these rich people. Oh, what a great yeah. job. Oh, so he's got some amazing stories, right? And he's written like seven books. Yeah. Right? And their books are, I've, I I don't read a whole lot, um, like a lot of books on tape, but I've listened, like I went through all of his material in like, two weeks yeah because it's really well done yeah. stuff and he's a yeah. creative guy yeah um, but he was talking on his podcast today or somebody was asking him and he's like <laughs> he's talking about like the financial part of like books and he's like oh yeah he's like don't ever what did he say he said something <laughs> about like don't ever do like the hourly wage math oh yeah on, oh, on no, being no, a book no. author because <laughs> the amount no, of time you put will, in uh-uh. no. versus what you make is just a joke it's pit oh yeah, yeah. it's pit. people don't realize that you don't get yeah. rich off of writing a book you can do other things around that a book is a calling card right that gets you in the door and it gets you legitimacy and it gets you people who really want to hear your voice but the book itself is never going to support you. I mean, yeah. people told me, I've luckily I've known book people for a long time, and a lot of them told me in the beginning, you know, it's you don't look at the book, you look at all the things around the book. Mm-hmm. And that's how you make a living off a book. Gotcha. It's, you know, it's, yeah, I hate to write, burst people's bubbles, but yeah. it sounds romantic. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to have a, a cookbook, you know. I think every yeah. she, I think every chef like dreams every chef, well, like yeah. dreams of having one. It's like, like my top chef buddies. A beard medal. What's that? <laughs> they all dream about a beard medal yeah. and a cookbook. And yeah. A book. Well, yeah, I gave up on my my beard medal <laughs> follies. Good. That was yeah. That was in my youth. Now I'm like an old yeah. like Henri. I'm like a. I hope hey. one of my chefs get one. Maybe one of the yeah. guys that work with me. Yeah, I think I think there is a legitimacy to seeing your name on the binder of a book, and I'm yeah. really lucky that my first two books were done before my folks died. Yeah, oh, that's you know, cool. My so mom they got, got to see, see that. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Well, so, I'm looking you know, forward to the memoir. It. That's going to be fun. <laughs> that's well, I did wait for everybody in my family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You probably had to, huh? You like let the cat yeah, out of the bag. Yeah, there's stuff that they don't know. That yeah, my, is, and my sister is the last one, and she's sort of like, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. You think there could be a book o- or a, a movie option in this thing? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> it's not that exciting. It is. Well, it is. Some people have told me that the story reminds them of the Notebook. Oh, whoa! Yeah, crazy. There's all kinds of yeah. It's a bizarre story. But yeah. All right. So go to meal. What is your go to? Like, oh, shoot. That one. At home. Or yeah, yeah. Or just, or whatever. Or it doesn't have to be at home, but it's the meal that like 
takes you to that happy place. Yeah. Whether it's at home or it's whatever. It's, yeah, see, what I used to always, I always had a great answer for that because I had Ben Philpott's chicken liver mousse mm -hmm. at the Block and Grinder, yeah. and then he was continuing to do it at the Stanley, and now he's not, and I'm bereft. So my go-to meal now would be Lee and Louise, the pork neck bisque. Okay. That cabbage bisque with the uh -huh. pork neck broth. Nice. Which I will actually order with a spoon and, and eat it as a soup because <laughs> it makes me so happy. Yeah. You know, who else? Where else do I go these days? I don't get out much. What about at home? At What's home? Your, do, you have a, do you have a meal that you like, that you've mastered that's like... My husband would say I've mastered steaks. I'm a okay. really good steak grill, like really? grill steak person. You, yeah. you do them on the grill over charcoal. Oh, gotcha. What's your technique? My Walk dad, me through it. My dad was the ultimate grill man. My Walk dad me through built it. his own grill. What? Out of, yeah, he made a grill out of a uh, fifty-gallon oil drum. Oh yeah. With the welded-on legs and the whole thing. Yeah. And you know, I was raised on that grill, so there's a real honor in my family. Let me. In let me being able to do a steak like my dad could do. What's a steak. your What's your procedure? My procedure is, first of all, make sure you get a damn good steak. It always starts you know, with the, I the mean, product. There's a, there's a guy at the regional farmer's market who sells Charolais beef from um, a French uh, mm -hmm. cow, mm -hmm. and they make an, they make amazing ribeyes, those guys. Yeah. And, you know, a ribeye. Got to be a ribeye because, yeah. you know, ribeye's got all the flavor. Fat is flavor. New York, yes, exactly. New York strips second if I can't get my hands on a good ribeye. Salt it about would, an Would hour. you ever do a filet? Not fillets are boring. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Why would I do something without I, flavor? I'm just asking because the people want to know. Yeah. <laughs> I just, okay. So no, it's a ribeye. It's, it's a ribeye rib number one. Or oh. a New York strip, but ribeye is my first choice. Yeah. Always. I'm uh, on salt that. it enough in advance to where it gets a good paracle on top. You know, nice mm -hmm. little, nice little coating that'll give you a nice thing. Yeah. Um, you know, grill it hard over, sear it like two, two, three minutes aside, and then move it off. The, the coals mm -hmm. to the because I always do indirect. Um, coals, so you're you're a, you're a charcoal person. I'm a char. Oh, always. Uh, yeah. Good lord, why yep. would why would you get gas? Why, <laughs> why? Really? I, Given a choice. I mean, come on. It takes you 20 minutes to light charcoal if you know what you're doing, yeah. uh, and that yeah. gives you time to take the food out of the refrigerator and take yeah, the you gotta, off you of gotta, it. So why not? Exactly. Uh, and usually, while this is going on, my husband's making me an old fashioned. There you go. And good man. Yes, he is. He's a very good man, and he was so hard to find. And. Then I, you know, let it stand for five minutes. You gotta let it rest, and then hit it with a squirt of lemon juice. Ooh! Because you gotta bring up. You gotta have you a little acidity. You gotta brighten fat. it. You gotta break up that yeah, fat a little bit. Yeah, like yeah, it. Yeah, and nice that's pretty move. much. You know, that's that's me on a steak, baby. Nice move, Purvis. Yeah. I like that. Thank you. Thank I'm gonna you. try. I'm gonna I try that one. Other things. I've never know? done the lemon on a steak. Before. Oh, you never squirted lemon on a steak. I always after, do it on my fish. After it comes off. I I never do. I've never done it on a steak. That was that's always a fish move for yeah. me. Yeah, no, no steak too, yeah. and, and a lot of times I'll put a pat of butter on and just mm. let it melt yeah, out. Yeah, you know, when it's still when it's doing that hot. I like that it. standing time. I mean that, but that was my dad. I mean, my dad was like garlic and lemon were and butter were my father's like three secrets to everything. Yeah, that's the smell of Saturday night for me. Mm. Nice. <laughs> that and Ray Charles on the stereo. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you go back to the Ray Charles? Do you oh, listen? all the time. What's yeah. your What's your yes. favorite? Oh, uh, I can't stop your cooking you. tunes. Can't stop loving you. Yeah. Um, and also, um, Judy, believe it or not, Judy Garland's uh, concert at Carnegie Hall. Love that. Really? Love that. If, I, if you're making Italian food. <laughs> you got to put it on. It's just love all the way coming through that thing. 
Carnegie yeah. Hall. Yeah, Judy Garland, live at Carnegie Hall. Very special album. It's a whole story behind that album. Well, do you, you got time for it? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Next time. Next time. On Eating Habits. <laughs> but it is a great one to cook there. Awesome. So, yeah. Well, I think that's all I got for you today. Thank you so much for yeah. chatting. It was nice to catch up and my pleasure. pick your brain Thank a little bit. Thank you for acting interested. I'm, you know. I actually am. I, you know, I'm the burned out old lady <laughs> of food here. It's nice to have you on the other side. <laughs> I like to be the one asking the questions now. Yeah, that's, yeah. You guys are getting your revenge yeah. on me now, aren't you? <laughs> it, I'm not going to be the only one. Other people. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot. Okay. Uh, have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.